We're going to dive into session one, and this is called the rise and triumph of the self-creating self. The rise and triumph of the self-creating self. So if you have been uh, paying attention to the world in the last 20, 30 years as we've been alive, uh, most of us in this room, I think that describes the entirety of our life. Uh, there's been a massive worldview shift in our culture, uh, and particularly a worldview shift that has had a lot of consequences that people are now starting to acknowledge and to recognize. Um, the basic problem goes something like this. Uh, before the modern advent of how we define happiness and joy and contentment and fulfillment, before that time of, let's say, the postmodern idea of happiness, there was the uh, modern idea of happiness, and before that there was, let's say, the traditional view of happiness. So the traditional view uh, is, let's say, in our culture, that would be the Western uh, Christian view of happiness, which means you're deriving the view of happiness from Christian values or morals. Uh, that was supplanted uh, in the age of reason by what we would call the modern view of happiness, which means uh, you're, you're happy uh, and you're rationally thinking about the world around you. So you define happiness, let's say, in empirical terms, such as definitive amounts of affluence or lack of need or things like that. Uh, and that worked for a time, but we live now in the last 20 or 30 years in what many people call the postmodern world. Uh, those terms are probably familiar to you, I'm, I'm assuming. And what ha this has caused uh, a fluctuating view of happiness. Um, and it goes uh, something like this. We've never been, at this point in our lives, as wealthy and as, uh, as affluent as we have in the whole history of humanity. So at this point in time, you have the amount of accommodations and uh, necessities met that previously only kings would have had met in, in previous eras and, and cultures, right? Uh, you have uh, toilets that flush, we have clean water on demand, uh, we can take warm showers, uh, we can have food and uh, honestly to our detriment, food that we probably shouldn't be eating. Um, so we, we have all this stuff that we would consider abundances of affluence and abundances of our needs being met. At the same time, that uh, rising, let's say, access to things that please us and could, could satisfy our needs, despite what the rationalists thought that the more we meet needs, the less people will feel discontent and anxious and depressed. What we've actually seen in the last you know, five, 10 years, uh, we've never been more depressed as a society. We've never been more anxious. Uh, we've never been more, uh, let's say, unhappy with the world around us. Um, and so this is something that people are studying and mystified by broadly. And what I think we're finding out as a culture is that the postmodern view of happiness, uh, which is that we self-define what makes us happy, uh, is, let's say, one of the solutions. And we're finding out, let's say, now at the tail end, that it's actually not a really good solution. Because when you let people run at their own definitions of what makes them happy and content and satisfied, uh, you find that when they run at those things and they realize that those things aren't all that they're cut out to be, uh, then, then they despair. Because you've told them the thing that will make them happy is doing the thing that they want to do. Then they do it and they realize it doesn't make them happy and now you've got a problem. So we have anxiety at all-time highs, depression at all-time highs, uh, guilt and shame at, at an all-time high in our culture, and discontentment at an all-time high. Um, and now the question we can ask as, as Christians, let's say existing in this world, defining this problem, um, how are we supposed to understand this issue? How do we understand, let's say, the preponderance of all these, uh, let's say, mental health issues or crises? Um, how can we make sense of it? So I think the basic understanding would be something like this. In a world that defines happiness by 
a person self-creating their idea of happiness. Uh, you tell someone, do whatever you want, that'll make you happy. In a world that defines happiness in that way, if that person decides that they are unhappy or that they are depressed or they are anxious, because you've already on the front end given them license to define what makes them happy, uh, you've also given them license to declare almost anything true about themselves with really out of, without really a tether to bring them back. So if you tell someone, whatever is going to make you happy, do that thing, and they run and do that thing, and then they decide, oh, that thing doesn't make me happy, I actually feel rather anxious and depressed and, and, uh, and I worry all the time, and you tell them, well, don't be worried because there's all these other rational things that can anchor you down. Remember, you've cut the tether to rationality on the front end because you told them, don't worry about rational things, run after whatever you think is going to make you happy. You've cut the tether. And now we're running into this issue as a society where young people are depressed and committing suicide at all-time high rates. Uh, when I was a, a teacher in the public school system only a couple years ago, uh, we had to go through hours-long training of how to spot suicidal ideation in teenagers, how to identify depression in young people, uh, which is not something that any teacher would have had to do, let's say, even 30 years ago, right? Because it just wasn't happening at this kind of rate. At the same time, people aren't only harming themselves, they're also harming people around them because now they hate one another and they want to get their anger out. And now we see an, a massive increase in school shootings and all this kind of stuff, the hatred of one another. And this is not among you know, seasoned criminals, this is teenagers. These are the young people of our, of our day and age. And I think it's because one of the things we've done as a society is we've, we've cut rationality in the real world away from happiness and experiences of joy and so then when people feel, let's say, negative emotions, like depression and doubt and, and worry, uh, we, because we've cut the rational connection between us and them and how to communicate those things, uh, we don't actually have a grip to bring them back and to, and to anchor them down in anything real or substantive. As opposed to this, the Christian worldview would say that the, the anchor points that people think of often as being limiting, uh, like God setting boundaries for human happiness and flourishing, those are actually good things because not only are they means by which we can experience flourishing, they're also a means by which we can bring someone back who's doubting or who's anxious or who worries. For instance, if you're a Christian and someone's, and someone's doubting their own identity, they think they're not worth anything and they want to take their own life. Well, we as Christians have a text that tells us you're made in the image of God, you're fearfully and wonderfully made, and God loves you, and God is searching for you to redeem you and to save you. He's actually gone out of his way to redeem your sinfulness. So God can both identify that you are probably as bad as you think you are, but do not despair because God does not despair and he actually deals with the problem objectively. Christians can say that kind of thing. The world cannot say that kind of thing. The world has said you're good and bright and wonderful. And when someone says, actually, I don't think so, the world actually doesn't have a, a recourse to say, why or why not? And so what do we do as a world? Well, we offer therapies and counseling and drugs and entertainment to try to distract ourselves from all of the problems, but it actually doesn't get at the core. And so when people are alone with their thoughts in the quiet of the night, or they have any amount of time away from people, they realize the emptiness of all the things around them. And these are things that we see uh, in, in insane numbers today. So as Christians, we read scripture, we see it has a realistic take on humanity, a realistic take on the world, but it also has a hopeful take on the world as well. It has both. It tells us we suck and there's a way in which we can actually find flourishing and joy and delight in the world around us. And it doesn't try to get us to do that by avoiding suffering or avoiding pain or avoiding things like this uh, that we will experience in this life. But rather it says that despite all of those things, God is still good and, and he's better than all of the things that we can 
uh, go through in this life. The opposite of that would be to say that there is no God, and so any kind of pain, suffering, or frustration that you feel, uh, it has to be dealt with. Maybe better education, uh, maybe better science, maybe better accommodations, maybe better entertainment. We're trying to dull and, and deal with the problem around us by, let's say, means of innovation and technology and other kinds of things. And we still realize as the world, we fall massively short of coming even close to dealing with the problems that afflict humanity, right? This, this became clear in uh, coronavirus 2020, uh, when people thought that, let's say, medicine had the answers and the Western world would certainly not be affected by any kind of a pandemic or plague. Uh, and yet, uh, we were. And people realized, oh, maybe medicine doesn't have everything figured out like, like it does, like, or, or like it pretends to. And if you work in a hospital setting or you work around people who are struggling with chronic pain or illness or things like that, you realize pretty quickly that as, as, as far advanced as we are in the world of medicine, uh, we still have so much to go to even come close to dealing with people's actual pain and actual suffering. Because the best pain, pain medication we can give people uh, are actually the most addictive and uh, for some people it actually has a limiting effect where if you give them too much of it, it actually stops doing its job, it stops numbing the pain as it ought to and so they need more and more and more ultimately until it would either be a fatal dose or they deal with their chronic pain. And people would rather take the fatal dose of a medication to numb themselves to the pain around them and the discomfort that they feel uh, rather than facing a world that has that kind of pain and discomfort. And so we see this all around us, right? And this is the postmodern worldview coming into fruition into medicine, into the world around us. And so it's not only just physical though, it's also, let's say, emotional. And uh, in many cases, I would argue spiritual, although an atheist would say there, there's maybe no such thing that could be well-defined as spiritual. But I think we can define many of our modern afflictions in that way. So with that being said, let's say we look at uh, how we define happiness in our world. Uh, and let, let, now let's pivot and let's say, Okay, well, what, what would scripture say about how do we define happiness? How do we find happiness in various things? And that's largely the aim of our entire time together tonight. But uh, for starters, I want to look just generally at the topic of contentment and discontentment. So the first, let's say, rung on the ladder, the lowest rung on the ladder, I think, in terms of, let's say, uh, difficulty to understand in scripture, uh, would be this idea of how are we content in this world, right? The Christian worldview says you can find contentment. Now the question is how? How do we find contentment? And there's uh, a number of texts we can go to uh, that would, let's say, start to answer this question. Uh, they're all, uh, or at least as many as I could find, are listed out there on the handout. We're just going to look at a handful of texts that deal with contentment and discontentment um, and get a broad survey of what Scripture would say about this topic. So uh, the first one I'd like to turn to is Exodus 20:17. I would encourage you, if you have a Bible or uh, you can find this on your phone as well, uh, that would be probably helpful to at least see this and know that these are not just my ideas that I'm going to be rattling off, but I think Scripture has a good take on all of the things we're going to be talking about. In Exodus 20:17, I'm just going to read it when I get there. It says the, uh, in the Ten Commandments list, reads like this, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Scripture, let's say at the front end, recognizes something about humanity, which is that we have a proclivity to want things that we shouldn't want. Now, our world says it's okay to want things. That's actually a good indication, uh, which tells you what to strive for, what to run after. 
You see this, for example, when people are in a marriage relationship and the world says uh, you, should, you should go after what you want. And if you've ever watched uh, a Hallmark movie or a, a modern a romantic kind of depiction of how this plays out, uh, usually the person that you're bound to in a relationship is not the person that's going to bring you that kind of happiness. So you've got to go outside of that relationship uh, to pursue the real love story, which is um, possibly in an old friend that you really uh, had uh, feelings for and, and things like this. The way the world answers the question is by saying what, whatever you feel in that moment, that's what you should pursue. Whatever you're coveting that's maybe not yours, uh, you should run after that and you'll find happiness in that. And that doesn't just apply to relationships, that also applies to material things. Um, but our, in our world, we know that this is actually not a good solution because, again, in our society, as affluent as we are, as much things as we can obtain, uh, never has there been a more high value market for advertising of things that people still can be convinced that they need. If you don't believe me, uh, every social media platform, every television commercial is aimed at convincing you you have something that you really need and they're going to tell you in their advertisement why you really need it. Uh, this is, then there's no, let's say, area of our modern economy that's immune from this, right? Uh, it goes all the way over to, uh, let's say, baby products and all the way over on the other end to um, different TV packages or different uh, therapy treatments. Um, there, there's all kinds of things that the world is convincing you that you actually need um, and that you can buy. And when you buy it, you'll, let's say, feel satisfied or feel happy. And scripture says, actually, there's a category of thing that you might want that you should not want. This is called coveting. It's a sin. And so just getting things that you want is actually not the solution. It's actually sinful. That's a very different take than our world on this kind of issue. Now, there's other texts that deal with the same kind of thing, but I want to kind of glance around all over the place. Uh, the next place I want to glance to is I'm going to skip all the way to the New Testament in Luke chapter 3, verse 14. And if we're looking at the idea of contentment, Luke chapter 3, verse 14, this is John the Baptist preaching uh, to lay people. Uh, particularly in this case, he's, he's talking to Roman soldiers. And they ask him, essentially, what shall we do to repent? Uh, and he says, uh, in verse 14, uh, he says to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats of false accusation, and be content with your wages. So John, when teaching the Roman soldiers how to live in their culture, he says something to the effect of, don't complain about your pay, be content with your pay. Now, if you think about how strange of a command that is, you might think, well, that, that doesn't sound very spiritual at all. Um, be, and, and we have a hard time understanding that because in our world, it's very common for people to say something to the effect of, uh, well, I should be getting paid more or I should actually have more than I do. Um, we even see this, uh, for example, when I was a teacher, I was part of a, a teacher's union by default of being part of the public school system. And not a day went by or a week went by where, where we weren't receiving emails from the union saying something to the effect of, we're going to lobby for more pay because we deserve better benefits. Now, whether or not their arguments might be validated, the point was, uh, if you were to ask the person the question, what is enough? What is enough pay? What is enough to actually get you happiness or joy or whatever? Um, there, there's no good answer. It's always a moving target, right? Because as soon as you achieve the previous pay scale that you lobbied for in the government, well, now there's another pay scale you're shooting for because... You know, what, what, what people think is that pay tells me how valuable I am. Pay tells me how much of a value I contribute to society. And so better pay is society telling me my job is more valuable. And if you're a Roman soldier, you can, you can understand, right? You protect the empire. 
and they didn't get paid very much to do that. So it was very common for them to grumble. And what does John the Baptist say? Not, yeah, I know it's unfair, I sympathize with you. It says something to the effect of, don't complain about your wages. So this is a, a, a Christian view of how you would, let's say, deal with your work situation and discontentment. John's answer is not, go get that thing because it'll make you happy. His point is, you gotta find happiness and contentment outside of, for example, your pay. You gotta find it outside of those things. Okay, one more text I wanna look at. Um, actually, two more, I lied. Uh, first, uh, Philippians chapter four. And we're gonna be in verse 11. I'm going to read the text first. I'm going to read verse 11 and 12. It says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. I know that in every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. This is Paul writing, reflecting on his situation. Uh, by the way, Paul is writing that from a Roman prison, uh, which is uh, way worse than an American prison. Uh, and they don't have the kind of accommodations you would think of in today. They don't have, let's say, hot meals. Uh, they don't have, let's say, mandatory outdoor time or recreational time. So you think about someone who's in prison and someone who's writing and reflecting on their, let's say, current circumstance, and they write something to the effect of, I'm doing great. I'm content in all things. And you can understand how strange that would be unless you understand that Paul's actually not rooting his contentment anywhere in his, let's say, felt experience in this world. And then we're kind of getting around the idea a little bit. The point being, and let's say in all of this, okay, if, you're, if you're asking, okay, all these texts that I laid out there for you, there's many more that you can look at, and I would encourage you to do so as well as you think through this topic. Um, the point that scripture is, let's say, addressing is contentment is not something that can be found ultimately in this world. In fact, to try to find contentment out of this world, out of the things you have, is a sin, covetousness. You shouldn't do that. Because, well, you might say, well, what's the harm? If I try to covet and I, I try to get things that, let's say, rightly aren't mine, I try to attain those things, what would, what would be so wrong about that? And, you know, we see this in culture. What, what's so wrong about that? Not only is it a sin, it actually doesn't work. It actually doesn't give you the kind of happiness that it promises to give you. And if you don't believe me on this, just think about, let's say, things that you have right now in your life that five years ago you didn't have or, let's say, couldn't even have dreamed of having. Maybe it's a job, acceptance into a school, a friend that you have that you treasure dearly and ask yourself the question would is that enough for you right now or is there still something on a day-to-day -day basis that you think about let's say wanting something else um, when i think about my own contentment or discontentment i often if i let's say do this exercise and i ask the question well what is something that i have now that five years ago i would have killed for and i say is that enough for me right now and i go oh no because on a day-to-day -day basis i can always think about the next thing that i want rather than the current provisions that I have. Why is scripture so accurate about these things? Scripture is written by God who has a realistic depiction of the world around him. So uh, our discontentment is something that we should actually deal with as scripture talks to us about it, uh, which is we take our discontentment before the Lord and we ask him for contentment. And we, we don't buy the lie that the world sells that you can actually find contentment in the material things of this world. If you want the full biblical treatment on this, I didn't put it down here, but write down the book of Ecclesiastes and study that thing left, right, and center. Because the book of Ecclesiastes is King of Israel, Solomon, richest king, had more wives than he, anyone could dream of, 
had more wealth than anyone could dream of, had the honor and respect of all the empires around him, the golden age of Israel, and he writes a reflection at the end of his life, something to the effect of, the more I had, the more I wanted. Everything under the sun is empty. That's his ultimate assessment. And if you were to go to the most successful people in this world, professional athletes, billionaires, people who have made it, they will always be able to identify something else that they want or that they don't have that they would like. It's kind of the sad lament of our society. The point is affluence doesn't actually give us contentment in the, things that we, in the way that we might think that it does. But that's not a problem because scripture actually can deal with that. So rather than, let's say, creating our own happiness in the image of ourselves and defining what we think we need and then running after those things, the scripture says actually happiness is found not in the things that you think that you want and need. Happiness is actually found in contentment with your condition before the Lord. This is where you would actually find happiness. So we'll, let's say, dive deeper into that as we move further, but that's, let's say, a preliminary thought on this issue. So with that, I'll close and go to questions on this topic. And if not, we'll take a quick five-minute break, and then we'll move to the next one.